Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On October the 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel in the most violent and terroristic fashion possible, an organization known as United Hatzalah, first responder, responder organization, began to do its work. Nobody was expecting what happened. Our guest didn't expect it, but he became deeply involved. Eli Beer is the CEO and the founder of United Hatzalah. Mr. Beer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a bit about your uh, organization, United Hatzalah. Well, United Hatzalah is a group of 7,000 volunteers who are all trained as paramedics or EMTs to respond to every type of emergency from choking to heart attacks to um, car accidents and, of course, terrorist attacks. And our goal is to get there in 90 seconds before brain damage starts occurring to people who are injured or hurt or sick. And uh, we go out to 2,000 emergencies every day. Uh, we are fully volunteers, meaning we go to save people. They don't get charged. Volunteers don't get paid. They don't get reimbursed for their time or even for the fuel that they use for their cars or, or these motorcycles. We have um, special vehicles that we give the volunteers that people actually give us, donate to us. And we use it. It's called ambucycles, motorcycle ambulances that are well-equipped like, like an ambulance, but has the ability to, to, to get there quickly because no traffic could stop a motorcycle. And when they get there, they could stabilize the patient. And then eventually when the ambulance arrives, they take them to the hospital. So we are ready to go 24 seven in, in seconds we're there. And that's what we do every day. And that's why we were so effective and so, um, such a big difference that we made October 7th. I ask my Israeli guests how that day, October 7th, began for them. And I know from listening to your interview with former Canadian ambassador to Israel, Vivian Berkovich, who will be on the air with us next hour, on the Ambassador State of Tel Aviv podcast, that October the 7th began with your phone ringing at 6.40 in the morning. Please take us back to that moment. 6.40 a.m., I receive a call from the United Hatzalah Command Center. We have an underground command center where we could be uh, operating even during missile attacks. And we had a team, a small team, nothing, you know, nothing out, you, you know, this was a Shabbat morning, of a holiday of Simchat Torah, which is a Torah celebration holiday. And um, we had 10 dispatchers answering the phone. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they started getting hundreds and hundreds of calls coming in. Um, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't answer the phones. People were just begging and crying, saying, just save our son, save our daughter, save our children. They're hiding. We're hiding them in the, in the, in the, in the bomb shelter. We're hiding them in, in a, in a, inside a, uh, um, some one person I'll never forget called and said, I, we're hiding our kids in the, in the attic. We're going out to save to save to save them. We're going out to be killed by the terrorists because they're looking for someone to to kill some some Jew to kill, and this is what people were calling us about. And we this is before the massacre. This is in the beginning of the massacre. So I jumped out of bed. I was in our command center within 15 minutes. Um, I saw dozens of volunteers coming in from other areas. Some of them were Orthodox Jews. Were coming with the talis on them. It reminded me of uh, pictures I saw from the Yom Kippur War, where people ran out of synagogue to join the trucks taking them to the to fighting, and they were wearing the talis, the the Jewish uh, um, cape. And uh, I, I I answered phones. I started answering phones, and all of a sudden, I get I'm getting these phone calls, and I'm getting a phone call of a woman saying. I hid my, my son inside a, a wash machine. 
So they don't find they don't find him. The problem was that they burned down these homes with the kids inside. They knew kids are hiding everywhere and people are hiding everywhere. And they want to make sure they kill everyone. So they burn down their homes so they choke to death and kill them and burn them. And uh, we were sending our troops from everywhere because we had hundreds of volunteers living in, in Kibbutz Beri and in Kfar Aza and all these places. They were living there and many of them were injured and many of them, we had two volunteers already shot and killed and murdered by the terrorists. And we had one volunteer who actually went out to save people and while he went to save the people, his kids were kidnapped. Later on, we found out we had two volunteers themselves were kidnapped. We were going through a real, real horrifying moments ourselves as a, as a volunteer corps. All of a sudden, we're in the front lines trying to save people. And one of our volunteers runs into a fire zone with a motorcycle, an ambulance, and the terrorists are shooting on him, shot him in his face, arm and leg. And he fell off the motorcycle. Luckily, he had a gun, a handgun on him, and he was able to shoot the terrorists. And he said, on the walkie-talkie, we hear him, we hear him say, oh, I, I, I dismantled the terrorist. He said, the terrorist. All of a sudden, he's yelling, and he's blood, he's bleeding everywhere from his face and leg. And he says, 20 others just showed up. That's how, that's how he understood it's not, it's not the terrorist anymore, it's a war. We understood that was a war because we had two volunteers that were killed in different diff different areas. Um, and uh, we, we started sending people from everywhere, from Tel Aviv, from Netanya, from Jerusalem, and volunteers with ambulances, with cars, with, with any possible way. They were just going down and going through the police checkpoints because the police said it's too dangerous to go in. But our volunteer says, we're not going to stand outside. We're going in. And they just, heroes, like real heroes, started rescuing people. And this was early in the morning. My wife, Gitti, was a paramedic. Uh, she's incredible. She's an American girl, made Aliyah, family made Aliyah to Israel. And she was always jealous that I come back every time with a smile after I save people. For many years, she saw me saving people. And then she said to me when she was 45, she said, I want to go to medical school to become a paramedic. And it was a four-year medical school a real top, top training, and she finished, she graduated three months ago. And she went in to save people, and she, I, I said goodbye to her. I gave her a hug right before I left. I said, Gitti, if you're going, you're not, you might not come back. And she said, I know, but I'm going. That's my job. That's what I went to school for, to learn to save lives. And that's what United Hatzalah is all about. Volunteers who, who put their own lives in danger, and they 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 put their side of their family, every their businesses, their family, and they run in to, to sacrifice their lives for for saving lives of people. So that's what we did that day, and we helped many many people. You must have wondered, where's the army? Well, let me tell you something that wasn't told before, because you probably interviewed so many people, and I'm saying this, and I'm very proud. In one hand, I'm very I'm very proud at one point. I'm very proud, but I'm sad. I'm sad to say this, but I'm very proud also to say this. United, um, the Israeli government failed, failed in this whole process. This, it was a terrible failure of the intelligence, of the government. Um, the army failed. The ones who actually saved Israel were the people. The people from the kibbutzim. The ones who were carrying the guns, the paramedics who were carrying the trauma kits, the, the people who ran in with trauma kits and with guns, the soldiers, the army failed, but the soldiers won because the soldiers from everywhere around the country put on uniforms, put on their boots, and ran down to save people, not getting organized by the army, but by themselves. That's why so many soldiers died, because... It takes an army, every army in the world, the Canadian army, the American army, the English army, any army takes hours or sometimes days to get organized to fight in a war. This was a war forced on Israel. This wasn't a terrorist attack. The army could deal with a terrorist attack easily. The police could deal with a, a terrorist attack. But when this terrorist attack was, su was, super, this, this, this was so organized, 
by Iran and other countries who were helping them getting organized. Hezbollah, this was something that was so big that an army has more than, it needs more than just a couple of hours to get organized. So the soldiers who came in, the Sayer Matkal, the Yamam, which the police, and the, the Egos, the other units, the Golani, the brigades of, of, of San Khanim, they came in. Many of them knew that they're going to die, but they're going to save Israel. If it wasn't for these people, if it wasn't for the civilians, and for the soldiers who ran in, we would have 5,000 more people murdered, if not more. And luckily, we have the people of Israel who are strong people and were able to protect the country. It wasn't the government. It wasn't the army. It was the soldiers, and it was the people. Yeah, I understand that uh, in some cases, that included Apache attack helicopter crews who just took off. And they did exactly. what they had to do. Exactly. If you know the story of the Apache, I'm very proud to see that you know it because the Apache guys are incredible. They didn't get orders from the top. The hierarchy of the army was broken because of what the surprise that we had. This was a big, big surprise, a Yom Kippur war again. So the Apache guys just jumped on the Apaches and they, and they got the coordinates by the people on the ground. A nephew of one of the Apache pilots was there, and he was sending messages, I'm, I'm under attack, please help me, and send, he sent the location where he was. That's how they knew, by WhatsApp, where to go. This was one of the worst situations for any army. I don't know how many armies could have... Uh, look, I'm an American. Besides for being a Jew and Israeli, I'm also an American. And I love the American government and the country and the, and the, and the, you know, the American people. I don't think America could have gotten organized faster. It's not like only Israel. This was a massive, massive attack from so many directions. Missiles, drones. These guys were flying these, these, uh, these uh, parachute things. They were coming from the water from everywhere. And it was like attacks of rats. If you see, I, I'm, I've been to New York many times when I see rats running from everywhere. How do you catch them? You can't. They're coming from everywhere. This is how they, these terrorists came. Mr. Beer, what do you say about people in this country saluting Hamas, supporting Hamas, and chanting the Hamas chants after what you saw on October 7th? Well, my father was my inspiration. My father was born 1928 in New York. And my father told me when he was a young boy, he, as a Jew, heard of what was going on in Europe, where Hitler is getting so popular, and so many people followed Hitler and his ideas, his ideology of killing every Jew, killing every gay, everyone he wanted. He, he had a plan to get rid of anyone Hitler had never, never liked. He had a whole book about this called Mein Kampf. And my father told me that in America, they had, they had parades for Hitler, parades with young people who believed that Hitler was right. We have to clean the world from the Jews and everyone else who could, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like according to his ideology, we should all have been dead. And in America and in other countries, they were saluting, saluting for Hitler. And when I see these youngsters, well, I can understand some of them that have a personal connection, maybe some family members of people in Gaza who uh, maybe, uh, maybe are screaming the pain that their families are suffering, which I blame the Hamas for. But people who are not connected to this, who are just fighting against Israel and blaming Israel for everything and saying from the, sea, from the river to the sea, free Palestine, these people are exactly the same as the pro-Nazis in 1936. There is no difference. 1938, 1940, people were saluting for Hitler. And by the way, I heard some interviews just in the last few days of famous people on, on, the Insta, on, in, on, on social media who are now saying that um, the, the English, the Prime Minister of England, 
was a criminal, a war criminal for what he did to Germany. Because now we're saying, how could you blame Israel for what they're doing? Uh, look at, you know, England, what they did to Germany. How many innocent Germans died when they were fighting against Germany? And they say, yeah, well, they were criminals. The, the English were criminals. They should have gone to, to, they should have executed them. This is what we're living through. People are looking at the Palestinians and what they're doing now in terms of the, the, the October 7th is the greatest thing they could have, they could have done. Oh, they're fighting for, 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 for freedom, for justice. For you know, this is a this is a terrible thing, and this has to be stopped. There is no difference fighting for you know for the Hamas right now for the Hamas and fighting for for Hitler in 1936. Same exact thing. Hamas just go on their website, and you know the website. They have a, a very clear message on it. They want to kill every single Israeli. And every single Jew, and then they want their plan is to continue to Europe, to Canada, to America, and they have already people everywhere. So it's just a it's just a, ma a matter of time. And, and they starting in Israel. Israel is the guinea pig for the Hamas, and it's the Hezbollah, and it's ISIS, Al Qaeda, and all these organizations are the same, 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 different names. Okay. And we should be very worried about this, Mr. Beer. I wish we had more time. I really do. Yeah, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, you're volunteers, and you are incredible people. And uh, you and uh, the other volunteers in the country saved saved Israel. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I hope we can talk again sometime. That, and I just want to mention our website, if you don't mind. Please, yeah, go ahead. Learn more. It's IsraelRescue.org. Okay, IsraelRescue.org. Thank you, Mr. Beer. Thank you. So it's uh, Movember, Movember, and it's interesting how many men are growing mustaches in Movember, supporting the campaign to um, develop and, and persuade men to be more responsible for our health, because we're not particularly, and I'm a walking example of that. And... Um, there's also an opportunity for you, of course, to contribute some dollars to research and development for maximum treatment and cure of prostate cancer. So what men and their partners and families particularly must be aware of as prostate issues can and do move very slowly before they become stage four cancer threats to life, which is my situation. I just put it off. I just put it off. I thought, that's ah, just staging and it's going to get better by itself and I don't need to go see a doctor. PSA test don't need it. Yes, I did. I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in now, likely, if I'd gone much sooner. My guest is Dr. Bobby Shagan, urologist, oncologist, the world's leading robotics prostate cancer surgeon and director of surgery at Hamilton, Ontario, St. Joseph's Hospital. Dr. Shagan is also, uh, I'm very fortunate that he's treating me. Dr. Shagan, thanks for coming back on the program. Uh, my pleasure, Roy. So, can we just generically approach the issue of men and our responsibility to our own health and being aware of what we're doing and what we should be doing, and, and then maybe, if you wouldn't mind, segueing right into the significance and the importance of maintaining or at least monitoring prostate health? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this issue has been uh, fought in the media back and forth as to whether men should be screened for prostate cancer routinely. And, you know, there's been controversy on the topic, but there's no doubt that when you look at it, it's a major public health issue in Canada, in the U.S., and in most uh, industrialized nations. It occurs very, very frequently. So somewhere around one in seven to one in eight men are going to develop this disease uh, in their lifetime. But the challenge has been the fact that, you know, the mortality from it uh, is not quite as bad as it would be, let's say, if you're diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, and because of that, there has been a lot of controversy um, in the literature and in the, in, the, in the lay public as to whether or not you should be screened for it, because what if you're over-treated? And what we've seen uh, about 10 years ago or so 
there was a move in the United States and then shortly thereafter in Canada to recommend to primary care practitioners to stop screening for prostate cancer, a move that was generally, I would say, in a wide, in a, in a, in a wide-ranging way, was a post-neurologist. And what we've seen since then is that the rates of incurable metastatic prostate cancer, as you've described, Roy, uh, have, it's, it's gone up without a doubt in every single state in the U.S. and also in Canada. And of course, once it's uh, once the cat's left the bag, it's usually incurable, uh, and it's a slow progressive disease. Now we've made a lot of headway in treating it, but of course, we don't want men to get there in the first place. So I think, you know, as long as the um, primary care world is divided on whether or not they should screen, men should take this issue into their own hands, be empowered to ask their primary care practitioner, I'd like to be screened for prostate cancer. And it's a very simple blood test along with a physical exam. Yeah, I've been very open with my listeners, as you know. I've, uh, yes. I've, I've, I've told exactly what's going on with me. And uh, you made it very clear to me the first time we met that my situation was, was not good. Uh, I need to t- take it very seriously, and I do. And thankfully for me, uh, there is new medication available, which uh, which helps a great deal. But but there are no guarantees, and you never want to get into this into this situation in the in the in the first place. But you know, you know this far better than I do, Doctor Shagan. But men will be in denial. Ah, it's nothing. That's the first one. Yeah, it's nothing. And then they go and seek um, substantively support from other men. Do you think I had a problem? No, you don't have a problem. And then they go away happy because they just were, their position was endorsed by a buddy who may be experiencing exactly the same thing. What should men be looking for if we're talking about prostate health? What are, are there indicators? And, and you're, you know, I'm, I know it's a slow moving disease. Yeah. What are the indicators we should be looking for? Well, and, and they're in like, right, that prostate cancer if present in its early stages, usually doesn't have specific symptoms. So that's why you have to sort of screen for this to make sure it's not there, uh, even when there are no symptoms. Unfortunately, by the time men have symptoms from prostate cancer, it's often pain as a result of uh, the disease having spread to bones. And that's when people get discovered of metastatic prostate cancer. What most men, in fact, have as they get into their 50s and 60s, is urinary symptoms, like urinary frequency, having to avoid more often, perhaps not avoiding with a good enough stream as they used to. And that's incredibly common, but it really bears no direct relationship to prostate cancer. And, you know, the presence or absence of those symptoms in no way guarantees that you don't have the disease or you do, in fact, have the disease. Most men with urinary symptoms don't have prostate cancer, and men with prostate cancer may or may not have symptoms. So the reality is you can't wait for symptoms. This should be a uh, a trigger in one man's life when you reach a certain age to say, look, it's time to get screened. Very much so in the same way as uh, you would get screened with endoscopy for colon cancer uh, and women, uh, perhaps mammographies for breast cancer. And there are segments of men in the population that should be screened earlier. So whereas most men would start screening around the age of 50, there are segments in the, in the population based on risk factors that should be screened much earlier. You know, for example, men who are who have um, African heritage, men with multiple first-degree relatives who have prostate cancer, men of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. All of these individuals are at higher risk. They should be screened earlier, and others get screened at the age of 50. The issue at hand, though, is that primary care practitioners are not routinely offering that because of... Um, organizations that have recommended against screening. Um, again, that exists in the U.S. and Canada. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that the vast majority of urologists, as well as cancer societies, don't endorse that view. And most of us feel that you should be screened, and screening should be smart. Uh, and if you are discovered to have prostate cancer, to take the steps necessary to make sure that you're getting the right treatment. And not every man with prostate cancer needs therapy. In fact, probably half the men that are discovered early on with, you know, on the basis of screening have disease that just requires monitoring. But that's a decision that you can make in an informed way if you've been screened and found to have the disease. Not to be screened at all, 
or to use, as you said, you know, your buddy's advice as to whether you're okay or not, or whether he has just had similar symptoms is really not a very uh, good way to go because you can certainly miss things that way. And uh, uh, as you well know, it's, you know, it's not, not a place you want to be, if at all possible. Of course, things have changed in the last decade. And, uh, you know, for men who are, unfortunately are in that position, we have far more effective treatments, and, and this continues to evolve very rapidly. So I think we're seeing a boom in that, but it remains incurable. And I think our push really is to take an incurable disease and make it from a you know a lethal disease to a chronically controllable disease. If we can accomplish that, we may end the problem. Dr. Shagan, I, the first time we talked, and we talked about the um, possibility that robotics could be involved if surgery is necessary, I did see an uptick in interest in, for men. Oh, this could be interesting. Also, this maybe not result in the sort of the after effects of surgery that I've heard about. Tell me about it. So, what are the options if you need to intervene surgically? What are the options, and when does the robotics enter the picture? <clears throat> uh, so, those are very good questions, and there's a lot of you know media focus on, you know, uh, sexy, uh, if you would call it that, approaches to surgery. And so, firstly, uh, for the most part, uh, surgery in prostate cancer would be offered to men whose disease is felt to be contained in in the prostate, uh, while at the same time still posing a threat. In other words, you shouldn't watch it. And probably about half the patients that I mentioned we actually watch. Of the ones whose disease is localized to the prostate, Broadly speaking, they have two options, surgery or radiation, and there are other sort of niche type of treatments out there. Uh, But the benchmarks are either surgery or radiation. And surgically speaking, uh, the vast majority of the offerings out there would be either a conventional open uh, radical prostatectomy, which we call radical retropubic. And that probably is about 60% of what happens across the uh, province. And then remaining 40% or so are done robotically or with robotic assistance. Um, and I think we're going to see that ratio uh, change in the next decade or so heavily in favor of robotics as the technology is now finally beginning to disseminate across the province. Um, and robotics is really, as you pointed out, why robotics? Well, <clears throat> once a surgeon's experience, the procedure is certainly less invasive, more accurate, less bleeding, less pain, a shorter length of stay in the hospital, um, and um, and ultimately probably a quicker return to yeah, the prior style of living for the for the patient. But no matter how you how the prostate is removed, I think it's really, really important that patients understand that there are aspects of their life that will never go back to what it was. Um, you can try to attain it as close as you can to that, but you need to reconcile beforehand that particularly urinary and sexual side of things will be changed in some manner, uh, in, you know, indefinitely. And knowing that and accepting that ahead of time is really, really important to avoid subsequent treatment regrets. And I think that's a key thing. And I think the, the, you mentioned Movember, and I would encourage men to check out the Movember website. It's a, it's a very good website and has a lot of good information as it pertains to, you know, how men's lives can be impacted, even in the case where the disease is localized and it's just surgery. Well, it's not never just surgery. Yeah. Movember.ca is the website, right? Correct, yeah. yes. Uh, we broadcast across the country. We only have about a minute and a half here, Dr. Shagan, but we, we broadcast nationally. So are the robotics surgical options available increasingly nationally? They are, yeah. I apologize. I, I was really talking about Ontario. So uh, it, it, it certainly is. Uh, it's available in, in many provinces, and and, and the um, the provinces that were not pre- previously um, had the technology available are rapidly coming online, thanks to um, you know the, the procedure becoming more palatable cost-wise uh, from the parent company. And over time, we're probably going to see dissemination of this more and more. Uh, and multiple sites within each province. But to varying degrees, it's available in the provinces now, yes. We're uh, doing our best efforts to try and uh, bring awareness to the parole board that uh, hopefully we have some people that have some common sense and uh, do not take a heartless uh, situation 
and try and uh, you know dwell on it to give the offender all the rights in the world uh, a free pass. Don Edwards, the former Team Tana goaltender, with us yesterday. Uh, Don's parents murdered by George Lovey. In 1991, and we were talking with Don about the parole board's decision to not hold an in-person parole hearing for Levy, who's already out five days of the week. He has his own apartment. Where's he get the money? He's never had a job. And that's one of the questions the Edwards family's asking. Where's he get the money? Who's paying for all of this? We are, I suppose. And so they've decided there's not going to be an in-person parole hearing. It can't be because of the pandemic, because the pandemic's over. So why is there a virtual parole hearing? And uh, Don and Tennis Edwards are concerned, and rightly so. It could be because the parole boards made up their mind to extend the privileges and the parole opportunities for one George Lovey, convicted multiple first-degree murderer. Don't be surprised if it happens December the 8th is the virtual parole hearing, and I am going to be part of that virtually as well. I'll be paying very close attention to what is said. Justice in Canada. Also this week, the Supreme Court has decided it's not going to hear appeals of four Canadians, possibly, likely, as I said earlier, former members of ISIS, in the custody of Kurdish forces, these four Canadians are calling for Canada's assistance to bring them home. One individual is Jack Letts, who never really lived in Canada, but his father is Canadian, and the family lives in the UK. The British government has rescinded Jack Letts' UK citizenship. His only citizenship is now Canadian. John Letts, Jack Letts' dad, was a guest on our program several times, unless the guys in the studio, Tom and Matt, grab that clip. Sent you an email the other day. Grab that clip of John Letts. I want to play it in just a bit. Um, Mr. Letts doubts that his son ever joined ISIS, even though he lived in Raqqa, which was the headquarters for ISIS. Mr. Trudeau, um, this is interesting, Mr. Trudeau said not, well, a couple of years ago, about these ISIS individuals coming back here, we know that actually someone who has engaged, I'm quoting directly, we know that actually someone who has engaged and turned away that hateful ideology can be extraordinarily powerful voice for preventing radicalization in future generations and younger people in the community. You know, it really is Alice in Wonderland. It really is. A jury in London, Ontario, has found Nathaniel Veltman of London guilty of four counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of a Muslim family in the city. And on and on the justice stories go. And he'll have a, he'll have a parole opportunity, probably you know, when he's in his late 40s. My good friend, and I've said many times what I know about Canadian justice, I've learned from him. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott was a Senior Policy Advisor to a Federal Public Safety Minister and Co-Chair of the Office for Victims of Crime in the province of Ontario. Where do we start? Scott, where do we start? Which one? Well, um, I think there's so many this week, eh? I mean, uh, the ones that you've lifted, but as well, the revelation that that... Uh, uh, child uh, abductor Randall Hopley. Oh, right. Randall Hopley, yes, of course. Uh, you know, was released. And um, even though he was deemed to be a long-term offender and he violated the conditions of his release when he uh, took off from the halfway house that he was supposedly in and he went to a, uh, a library uh, and was on the computer, which he wasn't supposed to be, and he was in the company of children. And so he was arrested for that, and he was brought to court. And that is a violating the conditions of a long-term offender order is actually a crime uh, in Canada. You can get up to 10 years for it. But uh, so he's charged with those offenses, and they uh, take him to court. And, uh, you know, in a normal court proceeding, uh, he is uh, granted bail. But guess what? He's not put into even a remand center. They put him back into 
the um, the same uh, Correctional Service of Canada uh, community facility. And a matter of uh, weeks later, he takes off again, and this time he cuts off his ankle bracelet that he's uh, wearing uh, to be monitored, and he goes missing again. And uh, I think it was about 10 days that he was gone before they caught him, uh, and he's back in custody. And that this this guy's case, uh, and I sent you an article that I had written about it uh, years ago, this guy's case just demonstrates what you were describing, which is the, you know, look the other way, disconnect within our criminal justice system. And um, I've, that's why I was glad again to see that uh, B.C. Premier Eby has said, like, what the hell is going on here? I want to know the facts about all of this stuff. And uh, that's something that I think is extremely important, and including something is not so much a legal system, but, you know, they obviously didn't have the right technology for the electronic monitoring because, and I know this because I help a company that's got this modernized technology, that if you try to, it's called a tough cuff, and if you try to cut it off, it's very difficult to do, and it also, as soon as you start, it sets off an alarm. But guess what? They weren't using that technology. They were using something that was, you know, not anywhere near as sophisticated, so he was able to cut it off. I think it's, this is very much a case that it's uh, worthwhile keeping an eye on to see what happens. Because, yeah. Yeah. as I put it at the end of the article when I was describing how he'd been released early, and it's because of the absurdity of the, you know, uh, uh, different procedural provisions within our criminal code that this guy was released, you know, frankly, earlier than what supposedly we all thought he was uh, uh, going to be serving. Um but it, it's know, a story, Scott. It's a story. It's a story that's it's a story that's replayed itself over and over. This is the latest, yes. latest installment. Yes, and th- that's I think what the real point is. Based on what I've seen in the charges, he's got a series of charges for breaching the long-term offender order, and uh, those are uh, a criminal offenses that you can get up to ten years on. Okay, plus a count of uh, failing to appear under Section 145 of the Criminal Code, you can get up to two years. So you got two instances of this guy doing it. I'm going to suggest well, that the, I mean, just in case the Crown's listening, why don't we get two ten-year consecutive sentences and a one-year consecutive sentence on the failing to appear, and we won't have to hear about him or think about him for another 21 years. Yeah, well, now think about this, and you're so familiar with this. We talked with Don Edwards yesterday. Yeah. And I've been working with the Edwards family since 1991, when George Lovey murdered Don's parents. And uh, so now the parole board has already granted Lovey two first-degree murder convictions, sexual assault of, of, uh, of uh, Don's sister. Uh, so now he's out. He has his own apartment. He's at his own apartment four or five nights a week. And now he wants absolutely no restrictions, and the parole board yeah, says, parole. You, yeah. tell me, you tell me about this. What, what are your thoughts on this? There was supposed to be, there was scheduled, scheduled uh, an in-person parole hearing about Levy's request for total parole freedom. And suddenly, the National Parole Board, or the parole, I don't know what they, what they call themselves now, National Parole Board, Parole Board of Canada, whatever, they, they decide arbitrarily that they're going to change not only the venue, but the delivery. It's now virtual, yeah. not in person. And Don said yesterday, and uh, he said Tannis is concerned, his wife is concerned, that they've already made up their minds that Lovey's going to get everything he asks for. They just don't want to do it with the Edwards family in person at the hearing. What do you think? Uh, yes, there's a saying that we developed for that uh, reality, a sad reality, but it's uh, no news is good news. And that I think I completely agree. I think that that is exactly the case, that I'm, I'm sure the board hasn't you know, formally made a decision, but um, it is way, way too closely connected in my experience with Correctional Services of Canada. And um, I had friends that were on the parole board years ago, and they were absolutely baffled. They used to have 
what they called uh, reconciliation meetings to make sure that the Correctional Service of Canada and the parole board's decisions were in you know, conformity with each other. So I, I, frankly, I agree. I think that's exactly what this sounds like, that the board has already decided that they're going to move in this particular direction and the less attention paid to this is what they want. You know what it makes me think about? And you and I have talked about this on the air many times, because it's happened on the air. You were on the air with me. Correctional Service Canada interview with a rep from CSC. And the rep from CSC said, in answer to a question I had about how the rights that you have in, in prison and who is in a prison in Canada's justice system reality, that rep said something about the rest of us. Do you remember what it was? I believe that you're referring to his uh, description of... Uh uh, Canadians as uh, uh, non-offenders living in the community. Non-convicted individuals living yes. in the community. Like and I just this, about fell out of my chair. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that that's the reality that I, I think we made some progress over the years. In, we did. You know, getting some, uh, some changes, but I'm, as you and I have discussed, I think it's creeping back to the same we know best about everything yeah. and, you know, we'll decide what we're going to do. All right, so the Supreme Court is not going to hear the appeals of four Canadians, maybe former members of ISIS, in the custody of Kurdish forces now, and they're calling on Canada's assistance to bring them home. One of them is, as I said earlier, Jack Letts, who never lived in Canada, but his father's Canadian, and uh, the family lives in the UK. The British government rescinded Jack Letts' UK citizenship, but Mr. Letts, Sr., John, was a guest on my program on a number of occasions. Here's something of what he said. I can tell you that the whole story of, of Jihadi Jack started when the journalist claimed in the Sunday paper in the UK that he called us and, joined, and, and said he joined ISIS, and he was the first white boy to join ISIS. That was an invention. It's a, it was an invention. But once you get it out there in the media, you know the way fake news works, and, and we all fall for it. And it's just snowballed, and nobody's giving us a chance to counter that. And because we're gagged because of this, uh, for having been arrested for trying to help him get out, the way this has been twisted, we can't speak about it. So as long as Jack stays in custody, the truth is not going to come out. Well, he's in custody of the, of the Kurds, and the Supreme Court of Canada says we're not going to intervene. Now, John Letts, and I've said this to you before, Scott, the dad, he's a dad who loves his son, and he wants the best. He wants the best for his son. I, I get it. I've got nothing against John Letts. A lot of questions, though, about Jack, who lived in Raqqa. How do you live in Raqqa, the capital for the ISIS murder clan, um, without being one of them? How, how does that happen? I, anyway. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court of Canada's decision they're not going to hear the appeals of these four Canadians to be brought back here? Well, um, Frankly, I'm not really that surprised. Um, there, there's two different issues here. One is the legal issue, uh, which the uh, Supreme Court has just ruled on. And the uh, other one, however, that I think is more important is, if you will, what I would call the strategic policy decision, which is not the responsibility of the court, but for the government of Canada to say, hey, you know, is it in our best interest strategically that we bring this guy back so we've got some control over him? But the focus of this has been uh, on that as a charter challenge. And just so your listeners are clear, uh, the argument is that Section 6 of the charter, which says every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada, that was the argument that was being used at the Supreme Court. And as the uh, Court of Appeal had previously uh, ruled and the federal government argued was that uh, there was no, that may be the case, but there is no legal obligation for the uh, government of Canada to um, actually take steps to repatriate the individual. They, their specific filing was uh, Federal Court of Appeal applied settled principles of law and charter interpretation to unchallenged findings of fact, the government said, especially when there is no participation by Canada in the detention of a Canadian citizen in a foreign country. 
there is there can be no obligation under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms for Canada to secure the release and effect the repatriation. Okay, and you and I have discussed this years ago when this came out, and I did some digging into it and did some research on things. And um, I think the real point that people should be asking themselves is, okay, you know, look, the Supreme Court has said that there's not a legal right, but does it make sense for Canada and Canadian security? What's the better course of action? Do we just leave these people in these camps and potentially, you know, God knows what's going to happen to them and if they end up coming back to Canada, or do we take advantage of the leverage that we've got over them right now Okay, and there's all sorts of legal things that we could actually do, whether it's having the locals prosecute them and then we could bring them back under the Extradition Act or International Transfer Offenders Act. We could put all sorts of conditions on them. You've seen that with the um, uh, the, the uh, jihadi wives who've been brought back. Yeah, and then so we give them 10 million bucks like Trudeau did for the, the Carter. The whole point of this thing was just so ridiculous when it first sort of hit the headlines, and it was... You know, oh, no, it's too dangerous. We can't go over there. We can't interview them. We can't do anything, you know. And then it was uh, Stuart Bell from uh, Global News who put together a team. (laughs) They went over and did all the interviews that supposedly our officials couldn't. Great investigative journalist, Stuart is. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. He's a great investigative journalist. Scotty, I have to stop here. You know how it goes. No problems. (laughs) Thanks so much for the time, always. Thanks. All right. Scott, bye-bye. Vivian Berkovich is the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and uh, her her podcast is uh, stateoftelaviv.com. I ambassador, I um, I don't I don't come close to losing it very often. I've done over a hundred thousand interviews, but I was close. I was so close. And, and I first heard Mr. Beer on your podcast when you were interviewing him. And that's where I found out about the Apache Cruise. Hey. How, you, you've, paint this picture for me, please, because I, I'm, I'm still dealing with what I heard. <laughs> I think we all are. And uh, it's, um, I mean, as Ellie has said, and so many people have said so many times, October 7th was just the beginning of the darkness. And each moment we plunge more deeply into it because we learn more about what actually transpired on that day, the following day. And we still don't know what is going on with the 240 plus hostages that were taken by Hamas and are being held underground in the Gaza Strip. The ferociousness, the inhumanity, the, the, the unspeakable glee and exultation with which these things were done by Hamas uh, is, is, I think it's impossible to process for most people. Yeah. So I totally empathize with and understand your feeling so overwhelmed. It's, it is overwhelming. There isn't much I haven't oh. seen. There isn't much I haven't seen. There isn't a whole lot I haven't experienced. Right. But listening to Mr. Beer was absolutely, uh, I don't know, in the, I don't know if this is the correct word, but it was stunning in the sense that it takes away your ability to, to um, compartmentalize or to function. You just listen and it just gets worse and worse and worse that's exactly exactly right and it it it, it just does i mean i don't feel we have i don't know how to speak of, of what we know and what we know has happened i really don't i mean you know one of the hostage mothers um who's waiting to hear word of her son um went mute as soon as as soon as she learned that he had been taken and the circumstances in which he had been been kidnapped by Hamas. She went mute. And we know that going mute is, is a kind of reaction, a psychological, physiological reaction to extreme trauma. And I, I kind of understand it in, in a way that I never feel I did before, because what is there to say? How, like, what words do we have? 
I, I don't, this savagery was, wasn't, is so, um, to your point that you, you've seen and heard an awful lot in your day. I feel I have as well. Many people have. But this, this has brought grizzled old generals to tears. Um, not just Israelis. <laughs> Lots of people who have worked in the most horrific circumstances. Yeah. I saw a video the other day. Yeah, it is. Um, so the, the word now is, and I saw this in the Jerusalem Post online, I've seen it in other areas, Israel, Hamas, and the United States close to a deal to cease fighting for five days and see up to 50 hostages mm. released in daily batches. Um, can you add anything to that? Does that surprise you? Uh, do you? Do you believe it? We've been hearing this about, listen, we've been hearing since October 7th about prospective deals. Um, and we have been hearing for days now, maybe almost a week, about this particular deal. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I mean, that's all I have to say. I mean, five days of ceasefire is a hell of a long time in these circumstances. And my question, and I believe that public opinion in Israel would support this, why just 50? Why not all of them? including the bodies of, um, you know, two soldiers that Hamas has kept um, since 2014 and two other Israeli civilians, one of whom is an Arab. Uh, they've had them hostage in, in the Gaza Strip, I think, since 2015. So why don't you repatriate everyone and all the bodies? Uh, and then, and then, you know, then I think that's a deal worth considering. But this kind of, you know, tortured release is, is why? Why? And you know that Israel actually had to stipulate, and the U.S. is one of the, the terms that um, if they're going to release children, that they not release the children without their mothers. I mean, that, it, that even has to be said to these savages, right? Yeah. We, we know there are so many children there who watched their children, their parents murdered before their eyes. And then they were taken hostage alone. And we know there are children there, a few with their parents. One is a now 10 and a half month old infant. We don't know if they've been left with their parents. We know a woman has given birth, a Thai woman gave birth in captivity. So let them all out. Let them all out. Ambassador, I was watching, uh, and I'm sure you've seen it, uh, commentary by Jake Tapper of CNN, and uh, they were talking about, or he was talking about, the Palestinians, the citizens, the civilians, who have and are suffering greatly. Uh -huh. And the question was asked of uh, Hamas representatives by international media they approved of, what are you doing with these tunnels? What's with all these tunnels? What do you do with them? And the answer was, that's where we fight from. That's where we protect ourselves, from the planes. We fight from there. Well, what about building air raid shelters for the civilians in Gaza? What about letting them use the tunnels? Oh, no, no, no. Most of the Palestinians, said the, uh, said the Hamas representatives, are refugees. They're the responsibility of the United Nations. They're not our problem. Right. And I, I listened to that, and I thought, this is like, this is madness. This is utter and total yeah. madness. What are your thoughts about the uh, Palestinian okay. civilians who find themselves in this, you know, incredible situations? Many have, you know, I, I know, well, you know, that you know the situation. You, you live in Tel Aviv. You know the situation better than I. I don't know it at all other than what I'm learning. What, what are your thoughts about all the civilians and what they're going through? It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, and I don't think anyone enjoys or revels in civilian suffering, aside from apparently, you know, Hamas when they're, you know, murdering and burning and raping and doing whatever they do to Israelis. Um, I think that the civilian suffering that we're seeing in Gaza now is horrific. But there are, <coughs> pardon me, there are so many layers of madness, as you say. So, I mean, first off, you know, that Hamas is saying, well, no, the, this tunnel network 
um, it's for us, and um, and we're not responsible for the refugees, and nor is it for them. We use this as our battleground. I mean, you know, those tunnels are built with money from Qatar, but also with stolen aid. So, for example, the concrete that is used in the tunnel construction is what's known in UN world land as a dual use material. Okay, so when Israel um, and Egypt allow material to pass through their borders into the Gaza Strip, cement, concrete is a dual use material that they allow to pass through, knowing full well that it's not going into building civilian housing. Canada donates tons, hundreds of millions of dollars for these projects. And it goes into the tunnels. It goes straight into the military infrastructure. So first of all, much of the tunnel infrastructure is purloined from civilians. That's bad. Um, And they've done nothing to create any form of shelter or civilian defense for airstrikes. When you're a military or paramilitary organization like Hamas operating out of civilian areas, which they do deliberately, um, and you're putting civilians at risk, if you're not going to build them air raid shelters, then at least, you know, um, let them hide out in your tunnel network. And it's much more than tunnels. These tunnels, um, some of them are wide enough to drive trucks through. They have full electricity. They have air circulation infiltration. They have computer networking capabilities. They have rooms, you know, where they're keeping the hostages and where many of them live um, on an almost permanent basis. I'm told that there's over 200 miles of tunnels. You know, the Gaza Strip is only, what, a few miles wide and I can't 20-plus miles long. I mean, this is a very small territory. They probably have more tunnel, um, you know, coverage than they do roads mm-hmm. in the Gaza Strip above ground. Mm-hmm. The whole notion of just kind of putting, using civilians as human shields and sacrificial lambs is so disgraceful. Well, you know what I heard? Going on, and it's been going on under the UN's nose for since 2006, those, 2007, uh, when they took power. Those interviews with the Hamas representatives are so deplorable. I mean, I, I, I posted Jake Tapper's interview to um, my right. Twitter feed at the Roy Green Show. Let me ask you this. So we have about uh, three right. minutes. Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, challenged Israel and accused Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu responded on Twitter. And then at the APEC yes, meeting, right, at APEC, where Trudeau mm-hmm. was more than less a sidebar among the national leaders in attendance, Trudeau had more words and more demands of Israel, and so did Mr. Wow. Jagmeet Singh. But let's concentrate on Mr. Trudeau. What are your thoughts? I, look, Trudeau has become, um, I would say he's a joke if he wasn't the leader of a G7 country of which I happen to be a citizen, Canada, and which I love dearly. He's a dangerous man, in my view. Um, He's making very um, intemperate comments. He's all over the place. He's quite unprincipled. And the little kind of scrap he got into with uh, with Bibi was, was just appalling. I mean, he came out and said, basically, Israel is just a baby killing nation. You know, he was feeding out the worst of Hamas propaganda. And I've seen then, yeah, with that tweet that he responded with, I've never seen him, any leader, never mind Bibi, do that. And I'm not a Bibi fan, I understand, but he just lashed back at him. And every syllable of that tweet was well-deserved on Justin's part. Justin took down his original comment online. And then the next day, he went to like... Benny Gantz, who's a general, and he's in the war cabinet and all that, and he's you know prominent Israeli, and he's part of the opposition. But I mean, he didn't have the decency to go to back to the prime minister of Israel or any of the more senior leaders, and he sort of tried to climb down a bit, and then he came back, as you say, again at APEC. I mean, I think that Justin Trudeau has made consistent comments um, that support Hamas and the sort of Hamas-Iran um, axis, if I can call it that. And I think that Canadians should be very concerned about that. You see, he has yet to refer to Hamas's actions as war crimes, you know, even October 7th. 
Yeah, I mean, I all he's I hear... He's wagging his finger at Israel, but he doesn't, hasn't wagged it at Hamas very much. What I hear him saying is, uh, you have to fight war according to international law. He said that over and over and over. And I get the... Uh, Only I Israel. Get, yeah, exactly. I he mean, is, I, I, get, I read between fine. the lines. Don't, it's is, not too hard. Well, I mean, you know what? Hamas, Hamas using hospitals and other civilian areas as bases, that's a war crime. Hamas's attack on Israel is a war crime. Hamas's gang rape, um, using rape as, as a military tactic, is a war crime. But let's just keep it really simple and stick to hospitals. There's a hospital called Barzillai Hospital just inside the border in Israel. And Ambassador, I'm sorry, I only have about thirty. I only have about thirty seconds, so okay. I've told you that Hamas has hit hospitals. Justin's never talked about war crimes. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us as as frequently as you have, and and being available to us for conversation. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Roy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.